last week, or maybe it was the week before, um, Shelby Austin filled out the communication card with two jokes, and I wanted to share them with you. I thought they were particularly good. Uh, So here's joke number one from Shelby Austin. How do cows do math problems? They calculate. And similarly, how do cows tell on their classmates? They cattletail. So when you... (laughs) Jessica's shaking her head. When, when you, she gets it from her father, right? Yes, she does, yes. So when you see Shelby after the service, please ask her if she has any more good cow jokes that she would like to share. My wife learned a cow joke last night. She could share that with you later today, too. It's a, it's a good one. All right, so here's what I need you guys to do. Find something to write with and something to write on. So it could be your bulletin, could be the doodle card, whatever, um, the communication card that's in front of you. But we are going to have a little bit of friendly competition to get us started here this morning. So you can work as an individual or you can work as a team. You probably will find it beneficial to work as a team with somebody that's near you, but you can work as an individual if you want. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a short amount of time. You are going to uh, brainstorm and write down as many famous friendships or famous duos that you can think of, all right? And you're going to try to match your list to whatever I'm thinking as famous friendships and duos, too, in order to win points. So, famous friendships, famous duos throughout history, pop culture, movies, TV shows, the Bible, books, the whole world is open for you to choose from. Famous friendships, famous duos. And I'll give you a short amount of time to work on that. Those of you who are at home watching on the live stream, I hope you guys are participating in this too. To be clear, we're looking for duos, two people, not like a whole group of friends, but someone and some, what, not the three amigos, no, no, not the three amigos, (laughs) what a funny movie, huh? Um, Not the three musketeers. Not the seven dwarves. Somebody and somebody. That's the formula we're looking for here. So, in fact, you might find it useful to say that out loud. Somebody and somebody. How, do, how does that trigger things in your mind? I'll give you a few more seconds. Don't worry. Even if you have a short list, there's going to be another opportunity to earn points and be victorious. Ten more seconds. Okay, so here's how this works. I have selected 16 famous friendships or duos. I have a picture of each of them. I'm going to flash the picture on the screen. And if you are able to shout out who they are, you get to give yourself one point. You've got to keep track on your sheet, okay? You don't have to be first, but it's not like somebody shouts it out and then two seconds later you shout it out. That's cheating. But if you know who it is right away, you're going to shout out who the, the duo on the screen is and you give yourself a point. If you also have that duo in your list, give yourself another point. Okay? Does that make sense? 
All right, so you could not even have a list, and you could still theoretically win if you know all 16 of these. Okay, so Matthew, the first one. All right, good. That was fast. That's good. All right, so. All right, two points, Joe? Two points? All right, good. All right, good. So Joe had it on his list. All right, next one, Matthew. Yeah, that was a little mushier than Batman and Robin, but some of you guys got it, so. Okay, good. All right, go ahead, Matthew, next one. Chandler. Oh, look at that. Chandler and Joey. Jessica yells it out right away. Good job. Yep. Chandler, what's his last name? Bang, Bang and Joey Tribbiani. Yeah, okay. All right, next one. Oh, but what are their names? What? Harry and Lloyd. There it is. Yes. All right, so if you got Dumb and Dumber, you can give yourself a point. If you got Harry and Lloyd, give yourself two points. Okay. And if, uh, no, so if you had it written down and you had Harry and Lloyd, you get three points. So, yeah. But nobody had it written down, right? What? M- movie, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so now, leaving behind pop culture. So you historians, let me give you one to chew on here. Ready? Go. Thomas Jefferson and, and nope. John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. Yeah, you guys know which one's which. Jefferson's on the left. Yep. Jefferson's the uh, the intimidating-looking one. John Adams, not so much. Yeah. Okay. All right. So um, again, historical. Now moving into. Kind of literary things. Next one. J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Yes, Tolkien with the pipe, Lewis with the smile. Yes. Keeping along the same lines. Next one. Gimli. And Legolas, yes, Gimli and Legolas from The Lord of the Rings, yep. All right, going back into American history now again, next one. Thomas Edison and Henry Ford, wow, way to go, Doug. You know which one's which? Ford's on the right, Edison on the left, yep. Right? Okay, all right. Uh, next one, please. Laurel and Hardy. Yeah, boy, Jason was very confident in that one. Okay. All right. Next one. Sherlock and Watson. Yep. Good. You guys all better get the next one. Go. (laughs) Han Solo and Chewbacca. Yeah. Yeah. Han and Chewie will accept that too. Yep. Uh, Owen's making Chewbacca noises. That's great. All right, next one. Jerry Seinfeld and George Costanza. Yep. All right, just a few more left. Next one. Nobody? Sean and Gus from the TV show Psych. Yep. All right, young ones in the room, this one's for you. 
Shrek and Donkey, yeah. Joe, did you have that one on your list? All right, great. Did you cheat? Did you look at things beforehand? So. All right, two more. This next one's probably the hardest one. Go. You know who they are, but do you know their names? Statler and Waldorf are their names. Yeah, nah, I don't know that they ever have their names in the show, right? But that's, that's who they are, right? And the last one, Snoopy and Woodstock. All right, so add up your points, a little bit of math, and we'll find out who the grand champion of our friendship challenge is. Oh, Lewis and Clark would have been a great option, yep. Laverne and Shirley. <laughs> I know, there's a million to choose from. Bill and Ted, yes. I, sh- I should, have cons- should have consulted my wife before making the list. So. Yeah. Tom and Jerry. Tom and Jerry, oh. Yeah. Sorry, no points for heckling. Rocky and Bullwinkle, yeah. Okay, so uh, look at your points. Does anybody have more than five points? Raise your hand, okay. Oh, that was easy? Okay, all right, so more than 10 points. Raise your hand. Really? Only, only down in this corner? Really? I'm going to think maybe. What? what? Yeah, this does seem a little unfair. All right, more than 12 points. Are you guys one team? Is that what's going on? No? Are you guys cheating? Is Owen giving you the answers? Okay. All right. More than 13 points. Oh, you guys are the winners. Congratulations. Okay. Jen and Carrie, good job. Give them a hand, please. Caroline, you win a Christmas poinsettia. Congratulations. Yeah. All right. So let's get a little more serious here. I'd like you guys to open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. It's in the Old Testament, chapter 13, you're going to find on page 234 in the Black Bibles. Today we're going to look at a passage of the Old Testament that features a, uh, a significant friendship. There are lots of significant friendships in the Bible. This is uh, one of the less, lesser known ones. Uh, it's Jonathan, son of King Saul, and a guy with no name, who's simply Jonathan's armor bearer. But we'll see in the story that they are close friends with each other. So this is about 3,000 years ago. The nation of Israel had a system of government designed by God, set up by God. So after the exodus and the wilderness wandering, God brought them into the promised land, and he said, this is how you guys are going to govern your society. You're going to have judges over your, your people, and they're going to judge on behalf of God. And Almost immediately, the people of Israel started looking around at all the nations around them who had kings instead of judges, and they started whining. We want a king. Why can't we have a king like everybody else? And eventually, God uh, gave them a king, and it came with a warning, basically. You guys asked for this, you're going to get what you asked for, right? And so God gave them Saul as the first king, and he was an okay king, and then a pretty rotten king after a while. Saul was what you would expect 
of a king. He was tall, he was handsome, he was rugged, he was strong, he was manly, he was a fighter. At least that's how he started out. A few years into his reign, and Saul is passive, scared, unable to make decisions, unable to defend his people. He is falling apart. And that's where we pick up the story today. Saul is failing his people, and God is going to use his son Jonathan, Prince Jonathan, to rescue his people in a significant way. At this point in the history of Israel, one of their main enemies were the Philistines. So let's look at our first map up here. So this is uh, modern Israel today, and we've got um, on the left, we've got the Gaza Strip, which is not technically part of regular Jewish Israel. That would be a Palestinian Muslim settlement. And then the shaded area is what would be called the West Bank. So if you hear things on the news about Israel, there's violence in the West Bank. There's violence in the Gaza Strip. That area of the Gaza Strip is where the Philistines had their dominant culture. They ruled from that area of the Gaza Strip. That's down on the coast next to the Mediterranean Sea, and they would come up into the hill country, in this case, the hill country of Judea, which is the southern part of Israel, and they would attack and they would raid, and actually at the point of our story today, they're pretty much running things in Judea. They have taken over. The Philistines were pagans, which means they worshipped various nature gods and goddesses, much like what we talked about last week. They hated the people of Israel, and they hated Israel's God. And if you know the story of David and Goliath, Goliath was a Philistine. He was a champion fighter for the Philistines. He, he would show up just a few chapters later. But for today, we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 13, 5 through, 17, 5, 5 through 7. This is going to set up for us our main story, which is in the next chapter. So 1 Samuel 13, 5 through 7. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. That's a lot of troops. Saul has 600. Saul's in trouble. He is seriously outnumbered. They came, came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth Aven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Like, here's an empty water cistern. I'm just going to hide in there and hope that the Philistines don't see me. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan, Jordan River, to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So, things are not great. Here's what we're looking at on the map. Michmash is where the Philistines are encamped. Saul and his men are in Gilgal. They're going to come down to meet the Philistines in the neighborhood of Michmash. Some of them are deserting. They're running back across the Jordan River to the east. So you have the Jordan River there in the valley on the east. To do that, they would pass either through or within sight of the city of Jericho, which was one of those great battles where God worked, did the battle for the Israelites. Like, as they walk past the city of Jericho, fleeing as deserters of, the enemy, deserters of the army of Israel, they see a reminder of how God in the past rescued his people, right? They're, they're walking past that on the way. You see Jerusalem down there, which doesn't play into the story, but gives you an idea of 
where we are located here. So if we go to the next map, you can see this is a, a shaded map to give you a sense. They're, they're going to hang out in a valley, all right? And so the Philistine camp is going to be up on a high point on one side on the east of the valley, and then Saul's camp is on the west, and it's actually in a cave. Now, this is a, taken from a modern map from Google Maps. You can see there are streets on there. Actually, if you could go to the north end of this map and look south, there'd be a giant billboard in the picture because there's, there's now a settlement, an apartment building, and all kinds of things there. But down in the valley, you can't see any of that. Saul and his son, Jonathan, are amassed together with their 600 men, and they're hiding in a cave, and they don't know what to do. Jonathan can't take it anymore. He's been waiting for Dad to do something. Dad can't make a decision. He doesn't know what to do, and so Jonathan's going to take things into his own hands. We now turn to chapter 14, 1 Samuel 14. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in, in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. So you probably picture this in your mind, but we actually have some pictures from that area that will help you. So complete with a friendly dog who was with the hiker who was taking the pictures. So this is if you're on the side of Saul's camp looking towards the cave. We'll go to the next slide. It'll point out the cave for you there. Cave's still there. And uh, you can just climb down from the neighborhood on the top and go hiking and go find this cave where this thing happened 3,000 years ago, right? Just amazing to me that it's still there. Here's a shot looking out of one of the entrances of the cave. And you might think, oh, wait a minute, there's 600 dudes hiding in here? How big is this cave? Well, let's go to the next picture. It's a pretty big cave, right? Like the Bible is not trying to pull one over on us here. There's a real cave in that location that's big enough to house 600 men. Now, I imagine it got pretty smelly in there pretty quickly, but uh, there is a large cave there. Now, what else are we told about this army hiding in the cave? If we continue on, verse 3, mid-sentence, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, who was wearing an ephod, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. All right, so we got a priest with him. He's wearing an ephod, which is a linen garment. Um, nobody's really clear today on what it looked like, but it had some kind of a, um, a decision-making mechanism in it. The priests would, would ask for wisdom from God on behalf of the king, and somehow they would use this holy underwear in order to make their decision and communicate that to the king. So we're meant to understand that Saul can't make a decision even though he has the priest of God with the holy underwear for decision-making in his presence, he's not asking God, what should I do? He's just frozen and stuck. And so Jonathan and his armor-bearer sneak out, and nobody knows that they're gone. Now, if you were just reading this chapter and hadn't read the few chapters before then, you would miss a key part of the story. In the previous chapter, we're told that the Philistines are so dominating this area that they have entirely disarmed the Israelis to the point that they have only two swords left. Saul has a sword and Jonathan has a sword. 
They're not even allowed to have blacksmiths, so they can't make more swords. We're told in the chapter before that if the Israelites need a plow or an axe or something sharpened, they have to go to a Philistine blacksmith and pay them an exorbitant amount to have their tool sharpened because they're not allowed to have blacksmiths. So Saul, he's probably got his fancy royal sword. Jonathan's probably got a fancier than regular sword, but it's mostly a a weapon of causing damage. There are two swords in the whole army. One of them walks out of the camp and nobody notices. This is an army that is not on its toes. Morale is down. Nobody's eager for a fight. Nobody's paying attention. Nobody is on watch. Nobody knows what's going on here. We go to verse 4. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sina. I don't know why they're naming their rocky crags, but they did. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Now, if you were to stand in the mouth of the cave and you were to look down the river valley, there is a prominent spot where people believe the uh, garrison of the Philistines was up where that star is there. And so if, if Jonathan went down the valley and turned left to go up that side valley, you can see that at least from this perspective, there is this big rocky outcrop there that he would have to pass through. And from here in Ohio, I don't have the ability to see the other side of that, but I'm going to assume that the other one is on the other side there. The point is, this is steep, rocky, rugged ground. The Philistines have the height advantage. They've got thousands of troops. And Jonathan and his armor bearer think it's a good idea to go over and pick a fight with these guys. From below, two against thousands. What is their plan? Verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised He's insulting them, right? These are uncircumcised pagans, heathens. It may be that the Lord will work for us. That's kind of the key point in the passage here. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Two against thousands, God can do it. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. A word here about the faith of Jonathan and his armor bearer. This is a beautiful, strong, practical faith. All right? We tend to think of faith in an abstract thing. Like, I believe that God exists. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that He died for me. I have these ideas in my head that I believe about God. And it's a different thing to actually take a risk to actively trust in God. God. That's what these guys are doing. They're taking a serious risk against ridiculous odds in order to act on the faith that they have. Jonathan has a, a firm conviction that if God wants to, he can defeat the Philistine army even with two guys who only have one sword between the two of them. That is the kind of faith and trust that is inspiring and humbling to me. Also notice the friendship here. 
Yes, it is the armor bearer's job to carry the armor for the prince. But he's not simply doing his job. Look at the way that he responds. He says, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. These guys are buddies. They've probably been through lots of battles together, maybe have saved each other's lives. They have been cemented together in the heat of battle. They are friends. And the armor bearer, who could have said, you know what, I'm not going to sneak out of the camp without my king knowing and take one of the only two swords that we have. In fact, let me go yell to the king right now. He could have done that. Instead, he says to Jonathan, I am with you, heart and soul. Whatever crazy mission you're going on, I am with you. Wouldn't it be amazing if our church was filled with friendships like that? They go way beyond, hey, how you doing? How was your week? And you go on to the next person on Sunday morning, but glued together, stuck together, I'm in it no matter what friendships, like Jonathan and his nameless armor bearer. All right, so Jonathan's got a plan. Seems like a crazy plan. Honestly, to me, it seems like a stupid plan. Verse 8, then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men We will show ourselves to them, and if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. The the gall of Jonathan to say, look, if they ask us to come up, then that is a sign that God has given them, the thousands, into our hand, the two. How did he come up with this plan? How how does he have the faith to make such a statement? Now, I don't recommend going about your decisions in this way, but at least in this particular case, God is at work in this. Verse 11, so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing or we'll teach you a lesson or we'll put you in your place, right? So I imagine them popping up and the Philistines are like, what, there's just two of them? And they start mocking them. As I was preparing for this, I was reminded of one of my favorite scenes in Monty Python's Search for the Holy Grail where King Arthur and his armor bearer are talking to the French knights up on the top of the castle, and the French knights are just insulting them. Uh, The great insults of that movie, your your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. He calls them silly English knigots. That's the scene. That's what I imagine going on here. The Philistines are mocking Jonathan and his armor bearer. But Jonathan and his armor bearer, according to their plan, their scheme, they now have the green light. They're like, hey, they're inviting us up. Must mean that God is going to give us the victory. Right? Going on. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet. So, so steep, he's, he's climbing like this, right? That's a bad way to approach a battle if you have to climb up using your hands. Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor bearer after him. They fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. 
Now, it doesn't matter that the ground is so steep that they have to climb up on their hands. It doesn't matter that they only have one sword between the two of them. God is with them in a special way and is fighting for them. As they fall before Jonathan and the armor bearer kills him. Now, Jonathan's got his sword. I don't know if the armor bearer's got an axe or a rake or a spoon or something, but he's finishing these guys off after they fall before Jonathan. 14. Now, the first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as, were, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. There was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. So Jonathan and his armor bearer, they are fighting like madmen, yes, but that does not explain the panic in the Philistine camp. God is doing something supernatural here. They should not be able to take out 20 guys. But there's even more going on supernaturally. There's God sends an earthquake at just that time, and the Philistine camp goes into a panic. They actually turn on themselves. They're killing each other. Verse 16. The watchmen of Saul and Gibeah, back in the cave there, of Benjamin, looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. It's like, what's going on with the Philistines? Did somebody sneak out? Line everybody up. Oh, no, the prince is gone. Does anybody know where Prince Jonathan is? This is embarrassing. Saul now is going to call for the Ark of God. So this would be the Ark of the Covenant. So you think back old movie of Indiana Jones, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. So it's this big chest that the... Israelites would carry around. They have the Ten Commandments and some other stuff in there. And it was the symbol, it was the location of the presence of God. And Saul, just like the whole ephod thing for getting um, decisions from God, Saul is going to call for the ark of God and for the priests. And so, he's got something in mind, some kind of decision-making process for figuring out what to do. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at the time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more, so that Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hands. So he's like, okay, we've got to get God involved here. We've got to figure out what we're supposed to do. You ask God on my behalf. Never mind. We don't have time to ask God. Let's just go fight. All right? Saul is a mess. He has no idea what to do. He goes in one direction. He turns, goes the opposite direction. He's like, I need God. Never mind. I don't have time for God. Let's go fight. Verse 20. When Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle, behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So some of the Hebrew people had defected. They were in the the camp of the Philistines on the, the enemy side, they now see, oh, the winds have changed. Now I'm going to fight with God's people. After all, they join in the battle then. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So people, all the regular folks were hiding. They figure out what's going on. They come out, they chase the Philistines. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Aven. 
Isn't that a good story? It would make a good movie, right? Who gets the credit here? Last verse of the story, God gets the credit. Yes, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who got the game started. They did the crazy bold act, but it says, so the Lord saved Israel that day. It was God working on their behalf. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, it may be that God will work for us. And the answer was yes, God worked for them. Without God, Jonathan's armor bearer would have been toast. They would have stood no chance at all. We would have a much less interesting story, or it might not have been, been recorded for us. But God was with them. God fought alongside them, supernaturally intervening for his people. And this is how this story connects back with what we've been talking through in Acts for the last few weeks, where Stephen has been preaching his sermon in front of the Sanhedrin, and he's been saying, look, God was with Abraham when he chose him out of all the nations in order to, to form the, the Hebrew people, the chosen people of God. And God was with, uh, with Joseph when the people of Israel went down into Egypt and it served as an incubator to grow them into a giant nation, but then enslave them. And God was with Moses when he led the people out of Egypt. God is with Jonathan and the people of Israel here, in spite of Saul's failed leadership. I wonder if we were to try to pull some kind of lesson, some application out of this for us. I am tempted to kind of go with the, the easy route for you guys. And that is, you know, this, is a, this is an encouraging story. We should be like Jonathan. Right? We should know God. We should know the promises of God. Like Jonathan knew that he was part of God's chosen people. He knew that God had a will for the nation. He knew that the Philistines should not be able to rule over the Israelites, should not be able to mistreat them and oppress them. All He knew that there was stuff that was wrong in the world, and he knew that he could do something about it. He had a track record of leading successful military campaigns in the past. He's like, I can do something about this. I could say, we should do the same thing. There's something broken in the world we can do something about it, let's go do it, let's take the risk, right? And that's true. But there's something bigger in here for us. The hinge point of this story is when Jonathan says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. He says that a thousand years before the death of Christ. Now we, 2,000 years after the death of Christ, we can look back and we can say, Jonathan, you didn't know how close you were to the truth. Because, yeah, God worked for you in that miraculous way to win that one battle. Big deal. God has worked in a much bigger way for us in the death of Jesus on our behalf. That whole Old Testament, in a sense, can, it's kind of given voice in those, those words of Jonathan whether it's Abraham or Moses or Joseph or Saul or David or Elijah or anything, it's like the whole Old Testament is thinking, in the future it may be, we hope, it's promised, but we hope it works. We hope that God will work for us. And then bursting in the into time comes God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, born as a baby, grown to a man who gives his life to ransom and saves us. 
We, we could not have saved ourselves from our own sin. Our, our problem is not an external problem. It's not that the Philistines are attacking us or that we can't get along with our spouse or there's a bully at school or our job is terrible. or what that, Those external problems, those are not what is fundamentally wrong with us. We are broken inside. We are all bent toward rebellion against our Creator and King. And we can't fix that. We need God to work for us. And so just like he did in what seems like a crazy big way in that battle, that's actually a tiny little version of what he did for us on the cross, the work that he did for us there. Because Jesus came, was one of us, was with us, gave himself for us because the Spirit now lives inside of us once we are saved. We know that God is with us because of the work that he did for us. Think of a verse that I've shared a couple times in the last few weeks with you, Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You may want to write that down and memorize it this week. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, that doesn't mean we're in charge and we get to tell God what to do and boss him around. But just as it was true for Jonathan, that God was with him and nobody could stand against him, it is even more true for us today. Or hear these words from David, who's not really part of the story yet, but would be, will become part of the story very soon in 1 Samuel. David and Jonathan become best buddies. So here's the words of Jonathan's soon-to-be best buddy, David, saying this, Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. Notice David, one of the greatest warriors in history, doesn't say, I got this, I got my shield, I got my strength, I can deal with this. No, he says, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts with my song, I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Those last words are similar to the song we sang this morning of how long, Lord. David is saying, look, we believe these things. We trust in you, Lord. You are our refuge. You are our strength. You are our Savior. Please come through for us. He's crying out in that psalm. Or in Psalm 118. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? People can do a lot of things to you. People have done a lot of things to us, haven't they? We got, we got some scars. We got some hurts. People are going to try to do things to us in the future. People are going to mistreat us. They're going to betray us. They're going to say bad things about us. It's just part of life. And yet the psalmist here says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me. Those aren't the words of Jonathan, but that is the attitude of Jonathan as he's down in the bottom of the valley looking up at the taunting Philistines at the top. The Lord is on our side. 
What could man do to him? Up he goes, fighting the battle. I want you guys to be encouraged. I want you guys to, to fix things that are wrong. And you see an injustice, I want you to go after it. I want you to be encouraged to, to be like Jonathan in that story. But so much more than that, I want you to know that the really important thing is not, are you courageous? Are you taking the risk? Are you trying to fight the injustice? Are you making a difference in the world? The really important thing is what God has already done for you in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, if he has saved you, you could be a coward the rest of your life, and yet God still loves you. He could use you in great, courageous, crazy ways like Jonathan, but he doesn't love you anymore because of that. He loves you so much that he gave his son, even as you are right now, in order to save you. It's not simply, it may be that God will work for us, but it's we know that God has done the work for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, thank you for this story out of 1 Samuel and uh, the way that it can encourage us and speak to us today. Thank you, Lord, that the, the big story of the Bible is so much bigger than that of the Israelites conquering the, the Philistines. 3,000 years ago, but Lord, you have conquered our arch enemy, Satan himself. You have destroyed the greatest threat, our own crooked and bent hearts, bent towards rebellion. You have, you have conquered that by doing the work for us that we could not do. Lord, it's, it's hard sometimes for us to trust you, trust you in those big things like, have you really saved us? I've repented of my sinful life. I've trusted in you. I've proclaimed it. I've, I've been baptized to tell the world all of these things. And yet I still, I wonder, Lord, if it's true or I wonder if you've really saved me. Father, help us to, help us to trust in the work that you have done for us. Lord, as we, we face armies of enemies and things that are wrong in the world and all that, Help us to be courageous and to take risks of faith on your, your behalf, Lord. But, but help us to always rest, to always rely on the fact that you have done the greatest work for us, that you've finished that work on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.